Good morning and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today my guest is Walt Harrison, President Emeritus at the University of Hartford in Connecticut. Harrison has held a number of volunteer leadership positions in the NCAA, serving as a member of the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, Chair of the NCAA's Executive Committee, and Chair of the Division I President's Advisory Committee. He is also best known for his decade-long chairing of the NCAA Committee on Academic Performance, during which the NCAA strengthened its commitment to student academic success and improved the graduation rate of student-athletes significantly in all sports. In 2014, he was recognized with the NCAA's President's Gerald R. Ford Award for his long commitment to student-athlete academic success. He has continued to serve on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, to which he was appointed also in 2014. I invited Dr. Harrison on the podcast to talk about an issue that is looming on the horizon for all of college athletics, the ability to monetize college athletes' names, images, and likenesses. Many of my listeners know this topic has been quite controversial. In fall of 2019, California became the first state to pass legislation to permit college athletes to get quote-unquote paid, if you will, on their brand on social media platforms, things like teaching, sports skills, and other things that regular college students are allowed to do, but athletes were not. Now the NCAA is on the clock, and it is under great pressure to design a solution that doesn't create a quote-unquote pay-for-play recruiting situation. It is a challenging proposition. And Walt, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The Knight Commission has been leading this discussion about names, images, and likenesses since 2008, when they were first used as athlete likenesses in video games. And then it was followed closely behind by the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit. Let's start with framing the discussion. What is the concept of names, images, and likenesses, and why should a senior leader in higher education understand this principle? Name, image, and likeness is not unique to college athletes. In a larger context of society, it's commonly known as a person's right of publicity, and generally everyone in this country has that right. The traditional concept of of NIL, as you just suggested, um, centered on endorsement deals, appearances, autographs, signings, and the like. While those still exist, they uh, likely will be limited to a relatively small number of college athletes. But social media has expanded the opportunity for college athletes and for all college students to be paid for their NIL and many people are paid for their role as social media influencers. There's been a growing consensus that this right should be extended to college athletes who have been prevented by NCAA rules from doing so. As you mentioned, state and federal-led lawmakers have taken an interest in this issue. To date, four states have passed laws that would allow college athletes to receive compensation for their NIL. Those states are California, Colorado, Nebraska, and Florida. And 33 other states have introduced legislation. There's also been a significant activity at the federal level, and there were two Senate hearings on the issue last month. 
The NCAA has also issued a report earlier this year, which we had a, we on the Knight Commission had a hand in at least discussing with them. And that the NCA recommended e that each of its divisions draft a set of rules that would allow college athletes to be paid for their NIL. Those rules are being drafted as we speak and are scheduled to be voted on in January and would take effect in August 2021. The Knight Commission agrees that the time has come for change to NCAA rules that would enable college athletes to pursue NIL opportunities like other students, provided such opportunities do not unduly interfere with the educational experience of the student or create pay-for-play arrangements. Earlier this year, the Knight Commission issued a set of principles that we hoped would guide the NCAA and federal and state lawmakers as they address NIL issues. Higher education leaders should understand the concept of NIL and its potential impact because one way or another change is coming, both from the NCAA itself and through a collection of state NIL laws and potentially federal law. This may be the most significant development for college athlete economic rights in our lifetime. So why do you think this has been so controversial? It seems like a normal extension of the rights that any student would have to capitalize on their brand as we say it today. So why has college athletics has such, has such trouble with this? This change is controversial because college athletes have not been permitted to receive compensation, as I said earlier. Um, they weren't allowed to receive any compensation related to their athletic ability that is, to use a legal term, untethered to education. So ath athletic scholarships were okay, but to maintain the concept of amateurism, the NCAA has not permitted schools to pay college athletes to play their sport, and has not permitted college athletes to receive compensation from third parties based on their athletic ability. The pending NIL changes will be a dramatic shift from the old way of operating for the NCAA, but for some commentators and advocates, these changes are not significant, I'm sorry, not sufficient because they would not allow for an entirely free market. So for some, these changes are a step in the right direction, but are still too restrictive. On the other side, some within the NCAA are concerned that this will open the door to pay for play, interfere with educational missions of the schools, corrupt the recruiting process and lead students to choose their schools based on the best NIL opportunities and will shift money from sponsorship deals that benefit the entire athletic department and all athletes to individual deals that will only benefit a small number of athletes. In fact, at the press conference where he signed Florida's NIL legislation, Governor DeSantis used the occasion to publicly entice high school athletes to come to Florida universities to take advantage of the new NIL opportunities that could be available first in Florida. The Knight Commission's principles are designed to provide more rights to college athletes while also modernizing, protecting, and strengthening college sports as a whole. 
Although there might be a shift of some money from school-wide deals to individual athletes, we believe our principals offer the appropriate guardrails to maintain a focus on education, avoid pay-for-play, impermissible benefits, and improper recruiting or retention arrangements. So one of the biggest fears, certainly that coaches have, is this perceived a real threat of a recruiting advantage in attracting athletes to your campus, just like you mentioned with Governor DeSantis. Two questions, walk us through what this might look like in a Division I FBS setting, and also then what it might look like in a Division Three setting where schools need athletics to thrive. Did not talk about my academic interests. I wrote a dissertation on uh, baseball and American culture. And I based some of that um, on research I did on game theory. And most of that game theory, and in fact, all of college sports at all levels are based on fair competition. Some schools have inherent recruiting advantages over others. And in, in, let's say in Major League Baseball, some teams are considered to be more prominent than others. Um, so this happens at all levels of college athletics and at professional athletics. But we do not want NIL opportunities to become the driving factor in a student's choice of schools. After all, we think the primary role of higher education and intercollegiate athletics is education. We also do not want NIL deals to be used as an end around to pay athletes for their performance or to pay them to attend a particular school. That last, I think, would destroy the idea of college athletics. We do want to protect legitimate transactions between third parties and college athletes for the use of their NIL. Imagine, for example, on a recruiting trip Coaches could arrange for prospects to meet with a handful of boosters and line up future endorsement packages so that guaranteed endorsement income of, say, $100,000 is arranged. Or if that company that manages the institution's marketing rights arranges for key sponsors to pay a key prospect to become a social media endorser. We believe that one of the most important guardrails is that the institution or any of its employees or any of its independent contractors, and I should say uh, independent contractors would be companies or third parties that manage the institution's media rights or sponsorships. We believe these groups cannot be involved in arranging, facilitating or identifying NIL deals and of course should not be permitted to pay the athletes directly or indirectly for their NIL. So that's division one. Let me uh, talk a little bit about your question about division three. And I know something about division three, not only from my student days in the dead ball era of baseball, but also um, I'd serve as a trustee of Trinity College, which is a division three institution. Division three uh, is on the other end of the spectrum as it relates to the commercial interests in college sports. But these NIL opportunities are still important to their athletes. And I think it's important to recognize that NIL opportunities will be available to athletes at all three divisions and across all sports. We're not just talking about big time college sports. 
It's a bit of a foreign concept for many of us, but an athlete does not need to be a star quarterback to be a social media influencer. In fact, none of the current social media influencers are college athletes, much less quarterbacks, because of the current NCAA restrictions. Softball players, football players, volleyball players, men's and women's basketball players, people who are starters, backups. I was a back, 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 backup. Men, women, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three athletes, all have the same opportunity to make money from their NIL. Division Three schools will allow their college athletes to take advantage of these NIL opportunities, but restrictions will be similar in prohibiting institutional involvement. This is especially important because Division Three institutions cannot offer athletically related aid to athletes. But again, as long as the institution is not involved, consistent with the Knight Commission principles and those being advanced by the NCA as well, Division Three athletes can earn money from external sources, external to the college or university, for the use of their NIL, just as any other student on campus can. So you alluded to this, but let's dive down a little bit more deeply into something that the Knight Commission has specifically mentioned in separating out the quote, added value the institutions and conferences bring from the athletes securing NIL rights. Walk us through what that means, and if you can, share an example of something that the commission could not support. Yes, this is a really important uh, difference, I think, among different groups that are approaching NIL. Um, on the Knight Commission, uh, we accepted the goal to allow college athletes the ability to earn money from their NIL just like any non-athlete student on campus can. But we do not want this to turn into an opportunity for schools, boosters, or others to directly or indirectly pay college athletes. So in addition to prohibiting institutional involvement, we also think that athletes should not be able to use or wear the marks and logos of their school or conference in NIL deals. The NCAA joins us in advancing these prohibitions as well. Let me think of an example that can shed some light on the reason for this restriction. If a university can allow individual athletes to use the school's trademarks and wear, for example, the team jersey in an endorsement deal, this could quickly devolve into third parties paying the athlete because the jersey and association with the school and not because of the, of the athlete's NIL. This would blur, if not destroy, the line between pay-for-play and NIL deals and would provide massive additional recruiting advantages for certain big-name schools. Consider how much a third party would pay for the right to have a quarterback wearing, for example, an Alabama jersey in an advertisement compared to how much they would be willing to pay for the right to have the same quarterback wear an Alabama State jersey. And I don't mean any offense to Alabama State, but there's a big difference in the recognition that those two schools have to football. 
if you think about this, you can quickly see how this could turn into a recruiting tool. The Knight Commission believes that prohibiting the use of institutional and conference logos or trademarks by college athletes is the key to ensuring that the relationship between the athlete and the institution does not become a pay-for-play arrangement. Our principles would, however, allow college athletes to be able to identify themselves as students and team members at their university. So they uh, could not wear the school jersey, but they could say, just wearing a, a plain jersey, for instance, they could say, my name is Jane Doe, and I'm a basketball player at State U. There is one potential exception to the use of institutional and conference marks, and I should point this out. The Knight Commission would support a national group licensing deal where all college athletes in a sport would be able to receive an equal share of revenue from the commercial use and institutional conference marks could be used. Such a national deal would mitigate any recruiting advantage since all students in that sport, that level or that conference uh, would, would benefit. Um, examples of these types of opportunities, and this is one that you alluded to earlier, could be college football or basketball video games. Very, were very popular when they were allowed. When we issued our NIL principles in April, we put together examples of applying those principles. I would recommend this document if your listeners want to learn how rules could apply in different potential scenarios. We've made the doc uh, document available at Knight Commission, Knight with a K, like the Knights of the Round Table, knightcommission.org. Yeah, so that's a that is, that's very heavy, and I think it's important for people to understand how important it is to separate the athlete from the university's branded entities like marks, colors, logos, that type of thing. So this Walt is a is enormously complex, and that's been one of the reasons it's been so hard to get our arms around this. So another point that the Knight Commission has advocated for is a separate commission to oversee the, quote, management and application, unquote, of uniform NIL rules. There is a lot there to unpack. So let's start with the reason for an independent board that's not the school, that's not the NCAA. And also you have all these different state and, and maybe even federal proposals coming down the pike. So talk to us about what this separate commission might look like. I, I want to say, first of all, to your first point about how complex and intricate all this is, um, I'm very grateful to the group of people on the Knight Commission that served on a committee that Christine Copper, a professor of chemistry and the uh, faculty athletics representative at the U.S. Naval Academy and I co-chaired. Much of this I didn't understand myself. So um, I think you, you really have to dive into it. You have to especially understand copyright law and, and uh, how uh, social media has changed its roles. So I, I think listeners who are listening to this and think, what in the world is he talking about? I felt the same way when I, when yeah. I began to look at this. Absolutely. It's very complicated with a lot of overlapping laws at multiple levels. Right. Um, 
So let's come to your second point about the Knight Commission's concept of an independent board. We think the application of NIL rules should be overseen by an entity that is led by a board with a majority of its uh, directors independent of anything to do with college athletics, and that some of its directors should be current or former college athletes. Why? Well, we believe uh, the NCA's current governance is not independent in nature. It's not constructed that way. It's constructed to represent the interests of conferences and institutions. And we believe that the athlete voice needs to be better represented and that decisions should be made with significant influence from independent experts. We're not saying that there couldn't be some people on this commission who had some ties to colleges, but we would prefer to have the majority of the people on this board be completely independent. The other reason is a very practical one. With the state and federal interest in ensuring NIL rights, ensuring that they are appropriately extended to college athletes, there will be a need for an entity that is not controlled by the NCAA in providing this oversight. Makes sense, it makes sense. There is the possibility, I should add, that you could have an arm's length relationship to the NCAA, as lawyers say, but the general point here is we want this group that is going to have the authority to apply make and some, to some extent and then apply the NIL rules to just be independent of the NCAA and colleges and conferences. So I think we can do it that way. I, I'd be happy to just summarize them quickly and then you might want to ask questions. Go ahead. There are five basic fairness principles. The first is fairness to athletes as students. So we're saying the rules have to be equitable. College students should be treated like other students. Um, they must be allowed to use duly licensed third-party professionals. Anybody can do that. I mean, any citizen of the United States. Um, and those, those third-party people, as I said earlier, many times should not be employees or independent contacts to the university. That's principle one. Second principle is informing athletes on their NIL rights. This is like almost anything else that you do with students. You need to tell them to begin with, here's, here's what you have a right to do. They have to understand some of what I was to, you and I have just been talking about with NIL rights so that they understand their legal rights. They can also understand the restrictions that we're talking about. Third, uh, the, we want an oversight of these NIL rules, and this is what we were just talking about. Um, we want an independent board that would oversee this, majority of the directors being independent. And we want it, it, it might have granted authority by the NCA, but we want it to be at an arm's length if that's the case. Might have, it might be appointed by an appropriate governmental body. Depends on whether, how the feds would come up with a rule. Um, and we want certain guardrails. And this is probably the most uh, controversial part and the, the part that people really, different people have different opinions on. We want certain, what people call guard rules for NIL rights. And we've talked about some of these, um, but we want these rules because we are very, we want to be very careful to avoid pay for play. We do not want impermissible benefits. And we don't want improper recruiting or retention arrangements. Um, so for example, we don't want um, 
a, a shoe company to be able to say to a high school athlete, come to this school and we'll help, we'll make you a representative of our shoe company. Um, so the, we had three basic things here and we've covered these already. So I'll do this, um, I'll cover the first one. We want conferences, institutions, and their employees uh, to be barred from providing or arranging for compensation. This needs to be done uh, by the athlete himself or herself and their representative, their quote, agent or lawyer or whatever they would choose to use. Um, second, we want uh, these NIL arrangements to be consistent with fair market value. It's another jargon term, but basically, we don't want a booster to be able to say, well, I, you know, generally I give some summer employment rules or uh, jobs to people for $5,000 for a summer, but here's this athlete who's a big star at State U, so I'm going to give her $100,000 for the summer. Um, and then finally, uh, we don't, as you, we've already covered, we, we don't want the athletes to be able to use the trademarks, logos, or other identifying copyrighted marks of the institution. And then our fifth principle is, is national uniformity. So you could have a federal law or you could have unified state laws where all the states were the same. We think, as I said earlier, it'd be a terrible idea to allow states to compete with for athletes or their institutions by offering different arrangements than other states would have. We need a level playing field so we need uniformity. Sure. That's, that's it. That's the five words. And for the listeners, I'll post those five uh, fair principles on the liner notes for this particular episode so you can read more about them. But in winding this down, Walt, help our listeners just understand why uniformity across state lines is so important. And do you see any speed bumps or barriers in our efforts to deal with Congress at this point in time? Are there any challenges that might be facing us to try to get something like this done? <laughs> That's an understatement. Um, and as it would be for any any group, industry, interest group who wanted to get some more through Congress. So there are definitely going to be um, difference of opinion. But let me let me go through the basic part of your question. Think about it. Um, every sport or athletic uh, competition that's uh, it, it's offered from pro leagues to little leagues, everything in between relies on uniform rules. I've talked about that before. It's just a basic uh, example. I used to, when I was teaching this in class, I used to say, um, imagine a baseball game and someone hits a ball and then runs to third base. It says, oh, I, I just got a triple. I mean, you can't do that. Neither side can do it. So you need rules. You need, everything has to be the same. You can't have one team in a football game that only has to go from the 30-yard line to the goal line to score and the other has to go from, the, from their own goal line to the other goal line to score. So it's just, rules are just an important part of games. Um, there's also a series of rules that, uh, that are made to ensure that competition is fair. The, the very common word level playing field comes from a sport metaphor. It means that, um, that every, every team should be treated exactly the same. If schools were uh, subject to different rules based on the state they're located in, 
it would be nearly impossible to have a uniform set of rules governing college sports, and it would give advantages to schools and states with more favorable NIL rules. I already mentioned Governor DeSantis in Florida. We just don't think uh, that the quality of your team should be uh, driven by the permissiveness of your state's laws. Um, this is true of other states. Uh, California is like Florida in that it would not permit schools to pay college athletes for their NIL. But other state bills, some of which are being drafted currently, would permit med schools to pay their college athletes directly. We think that would be a terrible mistake. Um, the NCAA would either have to eliminate all of the rules related to NIL or maintain uniformity um, or scrap uniformity and proceed with schools operating under different rules based on what state they are in. Something that no other sports league in the country think about it. Uh, and to, you can't, Little League in Alabama is no different than Little League in Pennsylvania. Everybody plays by the same rules. Um, so um, we, we would, uh, we would want to uh, prevent the NCAA or its schools from enforcing, um, or I'm sorry, that, that kind of, the way we think about that would prevent them from enforcing uniform rules. And that's why we're seeking help from Congress. The problem here is it's always complicated, as I said earlier. Um, the, the body that represents about a thousand institutions, the NCAA, sent one proposal to Congress, and the, and the so-called Autonomous Five or Power Five conferences sent another proposal to, conference, to Congress. So if you're in Congress, you're getting these two bodies that oversee college sports, and they can't even agree themselves on what the role should be. So um, it's it's going to be a while, I think, before we come up with a, a congressional um, consensus on what a rule should be. I don't think anything's going to happen. Uh, and anyone who tries to predict what happens in politics is, is going on a fool's errand. But I doubt it. Uh, you're going to see a rule, uh, any kind of laws passed between now and the uh, presidential election in November. And probably not in the, maybe there's a small chance it would get done in the OAM duck session. The NCAA is currently uh, asking its membership to approve its own approach in January. So I'm thinking that there's probably not much that will go on until then, but there's always a possibility. And, and I didn't mention already, I didn't mention to now that it seems to me Republicans and Democrats are trying to stake out different sides of this issue. So you got all this complexity. The Power Five wants one set of rules. NCAA as an institution which includes them wants another. Um, Republicans come at it in one way. Democratic, Democrats come at it another. I think it's going to be a while. I, I think, I'm afraid you might be right. So let's just shift for our final question out of NIL world and shift into the post-COVID-19 world. Give, your, give our listeners your perspective on where college athletics might be once we get through COVID-19, and we will get through it. <laughs> had a long career in higher ed, serving on a number of NCAA committees, and now serving on the Knight Commission. What do you see is ahead of us? Well, first of all, the context that I would want to put all this in is that higher education itself will, be, will have a different landscape after COVID and, and your listeners will understand, but just think about how, how much we've learned about 
a distance education uh, in the last six months. And that, those sorts of things and different kinds of curricular structures, I think are gonna change higher ed in some way or another. I don't really know exactly how, but I think that would change. But just like that, I think um, you're gonna see a much different landscape for college sports. The financial divide between these autonomous five or power five uh, football playing institutions and the rest of Division I schools has been growing exponentially over the 15 years that have passed since I was first elected to chair what was then called the Executive Committee of the NCAA. Uh, the corona coronavirus pandemic has exposed some of the serious fractures in this system. A big one is the oversized impact of F FBS football and the fact that the NCAA as an organization doesn't have very much control over it. This is something most people don't quite understand. Um, Division one sports are really due for an overhaul and I think this pandemic will make that essential. Now the Knight Commission is holding a series of virtual meetings this fall on transforming the division one model. First will be um, on September 16th. And uh, I think people who are interested in this very important topic about the future of college sports uh, would do well to listen to that forum and there'll be others after it with, with recommendations to follow. I'll be sure to put a link to that as well because I think the announcement just came out a couple of days ago. So, um, well, Walt, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us about this really complex. And, and I would say there aren't very many people who fully understand all of the, all of the things that could impact names, images, and likenesses. But I think the vast majority of people agree that something needs to change. It's just in how we approach the change and what we can do within the constructs of legal rights, both within the, the individual's rights and then the collective rights that athletes and institutions have. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today to talk about it. You're welcome, it was a privilege. I think that the five principles the Knight Commission um, has put forward provide a very thoughtful approach to this and fair approach, we believe. And I think this is an important conversation. I appreciate the time to discuss it. Thank you all.